Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Overline Podcast, Episode 8. Uh, today, I am joined by Joshua Bersky. Hello. And uh, that's, that's it. It's just the two of us. We're really excited about the conversation today. We want to keep you guys posted on some of the recent updates to our ecosystem, uh, whether it's the website or the mobile app. Uh, and then we want to talk about some, some topics that are near and dear to our heart which incorporates the, the use and utility of the hardware node itself. So to start, let's talk about some, some new updates. Josh, uh, what's, what's fresh off the presses? All right, so this week we had a few, few things go out. We had, of course, the long-awaited Android version of the mobile application go out. Uh, we have seen that there has been some feedback in the various channels pointing out uh, some small bugs here and there. So do know that we are implementing fixes for those and we'll have those pushed shortly. Secondary to that, you may have all noticed that we launched the new version of the website. It's and beautiful. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, you, you all may notice that it, it takes quite a substantially different design pathway one that is a little bit more in alignment with the version two of the desktop app interface. So that will be a design theme that we will be continuing going forward from here. And, you know, the website is in the grand scheme of things, a finer, uh, a somewhat minor uh, update. However, it does start to form the foundation of a lot of things to come. So you may notice that we have the ramp crypto widget integrated directly mm -hmm. into the site which will en enable individuals to purchase crypto directly with their credit cards and that is a step that we're taking in preparation for integrating some of the various different decentralized applications that we're building directly into the website itself right you were we we i, I noticed while scrolling through the app you had a, an entirely new section uh, called the overline products section and the swap functionality is coming soon. I'm imagining ramp plays in pretty obviously into, into any, any sort of easy to use swap functionality as well. That is exactly right. So the, the purpose there will be that once the swap does come out, obviously we will be integrating it into the desktop app, but ideally we'd also like to have a web hosted front end for it. So uh, what we're working on is eventually having that embedded directly into the homepage there itself. Now, of course, the swap still only in interacts with crypto. So, you know, you're able to swap between various cryptos, but if you're an individual coming to the site and you don't yet have any Bitcoin or Ether to make a trade using the swap, then the, the combination of having that ramp widget in addition to the swap interface or little widget it's a perfect combination, really. I think one of the exciting things that uh, is going around internally, and I, I think that if you actually remember all the way back to the second episode, I believe it's the second episode of this podcast, we talked about what's one of these sort of underrated um, things that are coming out in terms of the product pipeline. And we all sort of agreed one of, one of the main things was the mobile app functionality. I think the new uh, Android version of the mobile app definitely lays the groundwork for more 
functionality additions to that application that is still one of the underrated aspects of the overlying uh, portfolio and that is that the mobile app itself will be growing in functionality i yeah, would totally, totally agree with that and now that we do have both the application the, the, now that we have the application out on both of the major mobile os platforms i can uh, happily announce that we have started or uh, working on the v2 of the mobile application which does include a, a lot of new feature additions as you've just alluded to so uh, I would, you know, people can expect fairly big things to come with, with as that uh, application starts to progress. That a lot of this functionality will be particularly pronounced when the mobile app is combined with the much-awaited wireless mining devices. One hundred percent, and that's a great that's a great segue because I think when when I'm thinking about the applications of the mobile app and how we're going to be using it in the future it's not just managing your wallet and it's not even just managing a, a trade. The interaction with the wireless miner itself is going to be a, something that nobody's ever seen before. And I think the best way for us to sort of approach the, the topic that we wanted to talk about today, which is the utility of the wireless miner and seeing the applications of what a, a mobile app paired with a wireless miner would look like is actually to take a step back and examine the current status of internet access uh, and, and how it has been dwindling ever since its inception. In 2008 was the first recorded internet outage. That outage was affecting India, UAE, a few other countries in the area, but it was actually caused because the pipes that were running uh, across the floor of the ocean were damaged. Uh, at that time, in 2008, 90% of the internet was uh, transmitted through these pipelines and only about 10% of the internet via satellite. Um, there, was a there was a famously uh, comedic take by the, uh, the Senator Ted Stevens that he said the internet was a series of tubes. Uh, I think that's what he was mentioning uh, was that these, these pipelines serviced a lot of, uh, a lot of the internet in these, these growing areas. Uh, even, even recently, even in the last 10 years, you may have seen that viral headline where Google said that uh, sharks were attacking the internet. I don't know if you ever saw that picture. I Josh. did see that. Right. I did see that one. Seems pretty secure. It seems that seems like the right way to do things. If I'm, we're <laughs> obviously being facetious. If the sharks can take out the internet, I think that becomes a a pretty huge problem. So I think that really illustrates the the concept of one method that the internet uh, has had historically of of dwindling in terms of access, and that's that's outages. Uh, these outages happen as acts of God or natural disasters where individuals just have no, no longer have access to the internet or no longer have access to communicate uh, just because these things sort of happen. Uh, and that, that continues to this day uh, from 2008 all the way up to, to this year, whether it's uh, hurricanes or fires that take down telephone lines. This is all uh, still very relevant to today. Another, another way that 
the internet finds itself uh, disappearing in terms of access is cyber attacks. You can think back to 2016 when uh, back to back to back, Libya, Germany, and the United States were all hit with malware or DDoS attacks or ISPs that uh, completely shut down access to certain areas. Uh, and these are obviously not acts of God, but they might be incentivized by ransom or, or, or what have you. But these things also happen as well. Uh, you hear about companies getting ransomware by whether it's foreign actors or uh, or uh, anonymous groups of hackers. This is still an issue. And, and things like the internet, telecommunications are also very vulnerable to these things as well. You know, I, I think that if anything, it's highlighted just how fragile things really are. And certainly, you know, in the, in free societies, you know, such as those in the, in the West, we oftentimes kind of lull ourselves into a false sense of security by, you know, we see these things that happen overseas and we think, well, that'll never happen here. <laughs> as if where our, our leaders are somehow, you know, not subject to the, the pitfalls of, of human nature. You make a good point there because we're, we're talking about the different types of outages. We talked about acts of God. We talked about cyber attacks. Uh, we, 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 the things that you're mentioning, the things like, hey, this won't happen in our country. We often think of those in terms of shutdowns, in terms of government shutdowns. The first internet shutdown or the first recorded internet shutdown happened in Egypt in 2011, which was stopping an anti-government protest. But to your point, the lulling ourselves in Western societies into a false sense of security uh, is, is totally validated by the fact that that same year, in 2011, the first U.S.-based internet shutdown occurred. I did not know this until very That's recently. That's shocking for me as well. Yeah, in, in San Francisco, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, or BART, shut down internet access and, and cell phone service, jammed cell phone service, due to uh, an effort to prevent a protest from occurring after uh, a, a local policeman had shot a unarmed assailant. This was mind-blowing to, to your point, to someone who thinks, hey, I see it happening in the news. I see Kashmir losing internet. I see uh, Togo. I see Myanmar. I see uh, Hong Kong. I see all these different places. And you, you never think it's going to happen to you. But the fact of the matter, it is, it already has. And I think that's the thing, you know, if the last 18 months especially have shown people anything, it's that our freedoms here in the West are just as fragile as anywhere else, really. And I think freedoms more broadly are incredibly fragile. That's also shocking to see uh, what you can get a society to do and, you know, how much freedom you can have them to willingly give up mm. uh, if you place them under enough fear and you know sort of transitioning that into the crypto sense it's particularly it's well it's going to be very difficult for crypto to achieve its purpose as being censorship resistant money if you know a tyrannical actor can simply arbitrarily switch off the internet with effectively the, the press of a button. And I think that if we are ever going to achieve 
crypto's goal of, of truly being a censorship resistant financial system, we're going to have to address that, that gaping hole. It's a pretty significant Achilles heel at the moment. And I think that speaks to a lot of the ethos behind the decentralized nature of Overline, right? Is that at its core, we believe that if the incentives are there, if the perverse incentives are there, people are going to take advantage of them. And you see that time and time again in decentralized exchanges, but you also see those in uh, internet outages, or internet shutdowns. The concept is that if you if you've ingrained a population with uh, the ability to communicate, the ability to trade, the ability to participate in the economy and general society, whoever holds the keys to that uh, to that service have incentives that can be easily perverted. And so I think that's a really good point. Uh, and you know, it kind of feeds in well. A lot of the times, people wonder why we have built things in the way that we have. You know, we, we oftentimes get compared against uh, projects that have made significantly more compromises. You know, to boost things like TPS and you know, adopting things like validator-led consensus. And I know that at times, what we've built may appear clunky, and people throw that accusation at Bitcoin a lot too. But the point is that these technologies, if you're not building them in such a way where you're planning for the worst case scenario, you may as well not be building them at all. The entire purpose of the technologies that we're building, or at least you know, the entire purpose that, that we should be aligning ourselves with, is to build them to be as resilient as possible. It's you know, to el eliminate as much ease of, of rendering these networks useless as, as possible. You make, a, you make an interesting point. I think what is sort of lost on a lot of individuals, obfuscating the public access versus those that control the internet, their private access to the internet as well. Okay, so if you're going to shut down the internet in, let's say, let's say Myanmar, what you're doing is you're not shutting off the internet. You're just going to the different ISP and saying, hey, turn this off for this group of users. You're still using the internet. The ability to shut that individual down while maintaining access to information for a certain other class of individuals is something that I think is lost in this concept of internet shutdowns. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, they have so little opposition to shutting down the internet and the implications for themselves at least is often very minor i mean of course they do enormous damage economically and i think in in the example you mentioned myanmar i i know that uh, over a certain period of time their internet shutdowns uh, cost their economy more than the 2008 financial crisis cost the US. Jeez. And, you know, it's just, you know, particularly for a nation like that, that could really use the economic boost. It, it, it really makes you wonder how, how much tyranny holds back the development of a nation. A hundred percent. I, I want to sort of pull up here. I think this is a great moment to sort of pull back and say, 
this sounds like a lot of doom and gloom, right? Uh, whether it's whether it's the government <laughs> government shutting down your internet or or sharks biting your internet tubes, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons to be uh, at the very least uh, skeptical of the direction of where it's going. Has at the very least given a lot of folks reason reason for pause it's a great point and you know something to consider with the internet is the direction that it's been heading into over the last 10 to 20 years but particularly the last 10 it's been heading into the same style of concentration and, and centralization of power that the banking and financial system uh, did that really when you think about it led you know, that that hyper-centralization of power is effectively what gave birth to Bitcoin. And I think that we're seeing that same impetus start to grow in addressing the problem of this internet consolidation. You know, when you think about it, uh, an enormous percentage of the world's internet is effectively run on, you know, the cloud services or cloud infrastructure of like three firms. And that starts to become a particularly alarming when you start to see that we're increasingly normalizing the act of censoring people for political purposes. Even cheering it on. Even cheering it on, which is extremely bizarre to see, particularly in what should be free societies. I mean, it's shocking, to be honest with you. But it certainly highlights that we are long overdue for the same kind of renaissance that we saw uh, with Bitcoin in the banking industry. And I think that that same transformation is due to occur for the communication space. And I think as a nice segue there, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the Discord, someone was asking me earlier in the week, in five years, what do I think will be the primary use for Overline? And my answer shocked them because I said, I think it will actually be communication. You know, th this was shocking to them not to hear that it was trade because of course, most people know us for trying to address cross-chain trading in a decentralized, a decentralized way. And whilst that certainly is a big component of it, Overline has always been about connecti uh, connectivity. Its first phase was connecting blockchains in order to facilitate exchanges between the two. But transmitting a trade across chain is no different from transmitting any kind of data, say communications across chain. And I, I think that ultimately a far larger group of people five years down the line are likely to be familiar with the, the overline name in the context of communication rather than trade. I love that. And I think uh, I think we would all agree here that that is 100% the direction of where, at the very least, the, the public narrative is going to be shifting. And it's this wireless mining aspect. It's this hardware node. It's what we were speaking earlier, the concept of having your mobile device communicate with this node that really changes the game in terms of what is possible using the same algorithm as Overline's uh, multi-chain to power a wireless decentralized network. There's something fascinating with the idea of kind of merging 
you know, the, the, uh, the concepts of trade with communication itself. Because when you think about it, what is a conversation other than an exchange of ideas? Absolutely. I think this is a great place for us to sort of go back and say, all right, so we've, we've laid the foundation for where internet uh, access is, is limited, Act, acts of God, cyber attacks, or government shutdowns. The real question is, how does the Overline wireless network fit into these various scenarios? How would Overline help a uh, internet outage, for example, an act of God? Um, so I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask you that question, uh, Josh. How would Overline help in an instance where an act of God took away the ability to access the internet? That's a great question. And I think Overline addresses it in very much the same way that Bitcoin, or at least a similar way to how Bitcoin addresses the financial system, in that it provides people with an alternative that exists outside of the realm of the traditional financial system. And so mm -hmm. in this case, we, offer, we would offer people, or at least the wireless de mi uh, mining devices, would offer people an alternate method of communication that would exist outside of the bounds of the legacy telecommunications infrastructure. So if you found yourself in a particular location where the internet might go down for a variety of reasons, you know, it, it may be a government-imposed censorship, it, it could be an act of, of God, or it could just simply be that you're attending a, a music festival or a music concert. Mm -hmm. We've all been there where there's just so many people in one place, particularly when it's in you know, a fairly rural environment and the telecommunications infrastructure there is fairly sparse. You'll find that the telecommunications towers will be incredibly overloaded mm -hmm. and you won't be able to get a single message out to any of your friends. You know, when you're in a concert environment and you're trying to find your friends, that's alarming enough. But you can only imagine how alarming an event like that might be uh, if, if you're in a dangerous situation and, and communication is of an utmost priority. These wireless mining devices would give you the ability to make, will utilize very basic telecommunication services and incredibly long distances even if the legacy infrastructure were to go down. So you'd still be able to transact and you'd still be able to message one another. And I think that was one of the points you're making earlier, the concept of how, how the multi-chain, the overline multi-chain can transact and transfer and communicate across disparate data types. What you're actually sending when you're sending a transaction on the overline network is a small amount of data. Uh, inputs, uh, who who the transaction is coming from, who it's going to, things of that nature. Now, that exact same small data packet is essentially what a text is. A, a text is simply who it's going to, who it's coming from. So when you talk about traditional infrastructure of telecommunications, those are all trying to be the fastest, be the, the, the largest amount of data in the shortest amount of time. Uh, but in order to do that, the infrastructure costs of covering a certain area or even helping an overloaded area is immense. 
hundreds of millions of dollars just to cover small areas, because what you're trying to do as a larger telecommunications company is provide whatever their service tier level is. But with Overline, it's just so much cheaper and so much more efficient to deploy these individual nodes that can act as an emergency services layer for areas that are underserved. That's a good point. And I, I think that, that highlights one thing that's particularly interesting. Governments, for instance, have just as much incentive to adopt these devices as consumer users themselves. You know, there's as many use cases that are beneficial to helping a government, such as emergency communications infrastructure that you described that can be deployed mm -hmm. uh, at an incredibly quick pace there's just as much reason for them to adopt it as as the person who wants to start earning income by servicing right. their area with one of these wireless mining devices right so that's that's a that's a key differentiator for the overline uh, wireless miners is that it provides a service layer that is crucial to servicing internet outages but can do so cheaper and more efficient than anything else on the market when we talk about cyber attacks uh, as another example, uh, where perhaps there's a, a, a malware that's locking up a, a certain ISV, ISP from providing service, or there's a DDoS attack. I think what's interesting is that most mesh networks, the incentive is to go towards the center of the network. That's where you're going to get the most fees because that's where the most people are, et cetera. The overline proof of distance algorithm is incentivized to grow and heal the network. So as there becomes a need or as there becomes a visible load of, of transactions that, are, that necessarily require a lot of hops on the network, operators are incentivized to provide that area with coverage where there is a need for these, these transactions to go through, that's where the individuals are going to go. So for example, let's find, find yourself in a city that maybe the, the local ISP is, uh, has a, a malware attack and nobody in the city has access to the internet. What these nodes would allow individuals to do is to just hop over to the next town that has internet access. I think that's where the proof of distance algorithm is particularly interesting. As, as Patrick mentioned in the long podcast, that I believe it was podcast life, proof of distance was a name distance for a reason. It's not only measuring distances between hashes in the blockchain sense, but it's also measuring actual distance in the physical sense. And I think where it's particularly interesting is it introduces the same kind of cryptographic integrity to distance proofs that exists in cryptocurrency networks. And to a lot that may, to many that may not seem like the biggest innovation, but you would be surprised how game-changing that actually is and what the implications of that truly are. And the mesh networking space is really just the first area to be impacted by that. Mm -hmm. But it does solve what has traditionally been the key 
a piece that is, have, has prevented other networks, mesh networks from succeeding is that ultimately, because it's so easy to spoof your distance, your GPS distance, the mesh networks that have existed before now have all traditionally collapsed in on the center. Mm -hmm. And what's particularly interesting here is, is that that simply won't occur because the network itself incentivizes geographical diversity and for people to patch together and fill in gaps on the network. The last section, and this is something that we talked about earlier, which was uh, the internet shutdowns. So not outages, not attacks, but physical shutdowns where an agency, group of agencies find themselves at the helm of a switch and that switch can turn off internet access for anyone. I think that is a very real threat that I think we here at Overline definitely keep top of mind. And so when you say, how does Overline fit in to a internet shutdown scenario? I think the market has already answered very clearly that there is a demand for a secure private mesh networking uh, pathway for communication. For example, in the 2019 pro-democracy demonstrations, the, the Hong Kong uh, protests that we all were glued to the television watching, uh, downloads of uh, mesh networking apps were somewhere around several hundred thousand app downloads a day. I, I mean, it, for, for good reason too, right? You find yourself on uh, WhatsApp or find yourself on Facebook Messenger or wherever you find yourself on, the incentives for a government to have access to those communications is there. And if the incentives are there, people are going to act on it. And I think that threat was so real and so obvious and, and, and so very much uh, a reality for the individuals that were protesting in Hong Kong downloading anything that looked like a secure mesh network became uh, extremely important. The same thing happened in, in Myanmar, where uh, I think Bridge, BridgeFi, I think is the name of the app, that was a peer-to-peer -peer mesh networking app that had something like a, 1 million downloads uh, just after, after the, the Myanmar coup. Those, those, I think, illustrate the appetite uh, for uh, solutions that can provide peer-to-peer -peer communication in a secure and easy to access way. And obviously I think that's something that Overline very clearly fits into, into the narrative there. But what's interesting is how it differentiates itself from uh, the existing uh, mesh networking applications that are out there. So for example, we were talking earlier about how mesh networks themselves sort of collapse in on each other. Uh, BridgeFi is a good example, even though that was uh, downloaded a lot of times. One of the main issues is that it is uh, Bluetooth communication. So using only using the Bluetooth channel on your phone to communicate to individuals on this network uh, is novel in that you, you don't use the internet cell server cell service, but it also comes with its problems. Josh, how would you how would you describe 
the technology differences between using proof of distance at low frequency channels and Bluetooth. I think that anyone who has put on a pair of AirPods or, or wireless uh, Bluetooth earphones and tried to, you know, uh, leave their computer while they're on a call and, and to, to go and make some coffee in another room or something, <laughs> as anyone who's attempted <laughs> to do that may notice, it doesn't take you very far uh, before the the connection starts to get a little bit spotty. Sure. That is very much the same case with, you know, if you're trying to do a mesh network through Bluetooth, you're going to have to have a very densely packed area for that to be effective. Right. In contrast to that, the overlying wireless devices, as you mentioned, are using very low frequencies, which enables the data to be sent a pretty significant distance. And, you know, we're talking in certain environments to be multiple kilometers in terms of its range. Right. So, so it requires a lot less density and, and is a lot more practical from that standpoint in comparison to something that's, that's utilizing Bluetooth. And that's not even getting into the whole issue of distance spoofing and, and how do you prove that, that an individual operating a node is actually uh, located within the vicinity of, uh, vicinity of people that are demanding to use it. 100%. One of the things that I'm actually most excited about is just the ability to interact with crypto more broadly in a totally wireless and air-gapped manner. I think that that brings a level of security to the space that's a substantial upgrade. You know, if you think about being able to interact with hardware wallets and then being able to transmit from a hardware wallet out into, say, the Bitcoin, you know, a transaction into the Bitcoin network without ever touching the internet, you know, in a completely air-gapped manner, or at least at, at the level that the, the trans uh, transaction is transmitted, not having to go through the internet. That's a substantial development for the space. I think where it's interesting is that, you know, I personally will probably never make a, a Bitcoin or Ethereum transaction again without routing it through the Overline wireless network. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm not intending to trade on Overline, I will still transmit it wirelessly through an Overline node just because of the enormous security benefits for doing so. And every single time someone wants to make such a transaction, it's going to cost them a small amount of OL mm. uh, in order to pay the fee to the individual operating that wireless miner. But that's totally fine. I mean, the, the fee itself is incredibly low and, and for the benefits that you're getting, it's, it's pretty substantial. So I think to, to, to wrap everything up here, I think the we, we've talked about how internet outages, acts of God, large areas where maybe there's concerts or, or lots of individuals attending, how the Overline wireless miner can be deployed cheaper and more efficiently than anything else that exists and provides th the same level of basic coverage that would be necessary in order to, to label ourselves as emergency services. Uh, for cyber attacks, we've talked about how proof of distance actually introduces a, an incentivized uh, infrastructure that will heal itself in the event of a cyber attack and incentivizes operators to provide coverage to the right areas at the right time. And then finally, we talked about how 
for internet shutdowns. Uh, the device-to-device communication is in high demand, but what Overline's wireless miner brings to the table is long-distance communication on low frequencies that are done so in an air-gapped and completely secure manner. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this, this conversation. This is a topic that's near and dear to our hearts, the concept of how the internet itself uh, is, is, a, is a point of access that is fraught with vulnerabilities and that overlines wireless miner is an active solution to many of the issues that have presented themselves over the last 10, 20 years. Uh, thank you, Josh, for your time. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right. We will talk to you next time. Thanks a lot. Very well. That was the Overline podcast. Tune in to listen to us weekly or follow us on Twitter at Overline Network.